Thanks for listening to the AMPA podcast. My name is Omar Moalem. Every year, the Alberta Magazine Publishers Association holds an annual conference, bringing to Calgary some of our industry's best minds in editorial, design, marketing, and advertising. And there's a pretty good party, too. Over the season, I'm interviewing keynotes that you can meet there on March 16 and 17. We'll share tips and wisdom, and sometimes we'll just do what we love doing most, which is talk shop. In this episode, I'm talking with Andrew Rolf, owner of Cursive Consulting in the UK and a collaborator in Innovation Media Group, which counts the New York Times amongst its many media clients reinventing themselves for the digital age. His resume also includes three crucial years as the head of delivery at Guardian News and Media. He joins me via Skype. Andrew Rolf, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you're coming to bring us the gospel from the Innovation in Magazine Media 2017-2018 report. As far as gospels go, are you bringing with you the Old Testament or the Good News New Testament? <laughs> uh, it's definitely the Good News New Testament. I think it's a very exciting time right now. And I think the challenge is how to convey all of this um fantastic stuff that we're still in the process of putting together within the time that's been allotted to me. Two major areas that we're going to be talking about are new technology and monetization. There are some other areas that we want to talk about as well, so looking at messaging uh, and apps, looking at um, mobile-only content, looking at some of the more kind of quirky, uh, offbeat innovations that we're seeing in magazines at the moment, and uh, a piece on the difference between progressive and native apps. But I think the monetization and tech, those are, those are definitely looking like the biggest parts of the magazine, and, and really they're the areas which magazine publishers are, are, are really focusing on at the moment. So obviously a lot to entice our publishers that are going to be in attendance. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But first, I, I want to get to know you a little bit more. You've said that you admire people who apply their trade across a range of subjects. You've told me that designer Kenneth Grange and the late great architect Zaha Hadid are some of your inspirations. You yourself, you started as an engineer and a business analyst. And so I'm wondering, what was your path to publishing like? Pretty meandering i think is probably the best way to describe it there's um there's sort of two common threads from what i did uh, some time ago now when i trained as a, an electronic engineering was my um was my undergraduate degree and then i for my sins i kind of did a bit more of it and got a master's degree in it but the thing that really interested me was not really the technology itself, but how people use technology. So the, the common themes, I suppose, throughout my career, which has taken me into a variety of different industry sectors, like financial services, uh, retail, even into sort of central government, has, has been looking at interplay, if you like, between um, people and audiences and the, the technology that's available to them. Just being seduced by the technology is, is kind of a bit dangerous, in my opinion. You, you know, technology can always do some exciting things, but the real leveler is exactly how people want to use the technology. And that's the bit that really fascinates me, because sometimes the best ideas and the best technologies aren't necessarily the things that, uh, that, that win out, ultimately. So I've done quite a few roles where early in my career I was I was building things, I was working on projects, I was develop, helping develop complex systems, um, everything from mission planning systems for helicopter pilots, uh, right through to back office processing systems for large banks. Um, 
and over time I found that actually the thing that was preventing or, or not so much preventing but the the limiting factor often to the success of the projects was the environment in which the projects were being done so what was the mindset of the people who were sponsoring the project and funding it and then you move into kind of an area which is almost like sort of corporate psychology I suppose and I found that um, working as a management consultant was an area was allowed me to get involved in some of those conversations and shape those. Is there a, is there a correct attitude to to go into sort of a digital uh, transformation for a company? Yes, I think there is. So the the projects that I've had most success in delivering have been where there's a, a mutual respect between the people commissioning or sponsoring funding the project and the people delivering it. I can think about a couple of uh, scenarios where we all, the, the project outcome was greater than the sum of the parts. Now, I, I know that's a sort of business cliche at times, but it, it does sometimes happen. And what you need for that is um, a very open client. It's, not, it's, a, it's a mistake to think that the, the client has to have a very clear idea of exactly what they need when they start the project. Sometimes being very clear about what their success criteria are um, or what uh, some of the perhaps some of the softer benefits of the project might be are as useful as just saying okay we know we've finished when we've you know implemented this system or when we've reached this target audience number so I, I think that that level of openness has been the um, characteristic that has defined successful projects to me knowing where both sides stand and you, you kind of, there's a sort of mutual respect for, for both sides. If you don't have that, you, you have a, a, a sort of master and servant relationship between, between both sides of the project. And, and that can create friction. It can create a lot of sort of um, unhealthy dynamics on the project, I think. And when did you start to apply your trade to publishing? When, when did that change for you? I worked on a, an assignment as a management consultant with a um, company called Trader Media Group who have a publication, uh, magazine publication at the time called Auto Trader Magazine, which in sure. the UK has been, uh, and in Canada and South Africa, um, very successful publication. And what was so exciting for me about that was that they were a, an organization that was fundamentally rethinking their business model. They were moving from a you know a weekly magazine publisher in the UK to becoming a data business for the auto sector um, and that was a it was quite a scary time for some of their people it was quite an uncertain time but it was also a very exciting time because the the value of the data that they were sitting on was was like gold dust to um, garages retailers um, and the auto industry, the, the manufacturing side of the auto industry. They, they had some really, so it was a very exciting project and um, that was my first sort of glimpse into the, into the world of publishing. And then I took a job with Guardian News and Media and um, I was there very happily for, uh, for about three years, uh, again through some periods of quite extensive yes. change. Some very crucial three years, 2013 to 2016. Auto Trade, I think, is a very um, it's it's a publication, yes, but it's a very different beast from a news provider, especially a leg legacy news institution like like the Guardian. Um, what were those three years like? Yeah, it was a it was a real roller coaster being there because it, in some ways, you know, very exciting times, a, a real 
mandate from the senior management to grow the operation um, to try to become this digital first uh, global news brand and in some ways you know against some of the counts they, they've succeeded in that you know they're one of the um, most well-read English language news brands online um, they have a they have brought a lot of their digital capability in-house so they have the the skills in-house to build new products um, and to and I think one of the areas where they've really got their heads around is is a, is understanding understanding data at every level. So by that I mean understanding the minute by minute impact of of data on a on the on the sort of um, success of a particular story, right through to some of the more macro behaviours that we're seeing in in the newspaper industry. So very exciting from that point of view. Very tough because like all publishers and particularly daily news publishers they're in a in a sort of perfect storm right now everything is is sort of is changing you know they are print revenues print subscriptions are are, are falling um, they're they're under threat because the ad revenues are disappearing Facebook and Google want to take um, take their users and keep them within their kind of walled gardens you know you you've got a generation now that expects to be able to get quality news journalism for free uh, you know the, every, on every front they're they're sort of really having to respond so it's a it, it was a tough time as well um, you know you know um, Necessity is the mother of invention, and yeah. I think that that kind of made for some good outcomes as well. And they certainly have had to reinvent in some ways. You now divide your time between your own consultancy, Cursive Consulting, and uh, work with Innovation Media Group. Innovation Media Group has worked with the New York Times, Le Mans, so many other publications trying to reinvent their editorial models. It is... When I imagine IMG, I imagine it kind of like the wolf from Pulp Fiction. You know, what's what's your problem? You you call them in for a solution. What what are the major problems that your your clients are are facing right now? What is the the proverbial blood on the car seat? Um, I, yeah, that's a that's a really good analogy. Um, I haven't met any wolves there. They're they're far too nice to sort of um behave like that. But certainly in terms of the problems that we're finding. I think it's trying to understand how to how to make a news operation digital. That's a that, that's a big one. How to make newsrooms operate effectively for a um, consumption cycle that is changing. So you know, whereas before, you know, you could, you could all gather at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, send the paper to the presses, and and it would land in people's doorsteps the next morning at 7 a.m. That isn't, you know, that that news is already a day old. It's, it, you know, that's no surprise to anybody. But, you know, people, the the peaks now are that morning commute period where people are on their mobile. There's a kind of desktop peak around lunchtime, and then sort of a, you know, picking up again in the evening with um, uh, people back on their mobiles or their tablets, and and that is a very different publishing model. It's almost like you have to have three editions. Yeah, yeah. We're not just yeah. So you've you've got to you've got to cater for three peaks of demand, but these people are in different. If you if you think about it from the user's point of view, they have different need states. So in the morning, it's kind of snackable content because you're on the go. At lunchtime, maybe you've got a bit more time, but you you want a different sort of blend of stories. You don't just want kind of heavy analytical stuff in the evening. Again, maybe the story's moved on from what you read in the morning or at lunchtime. So you want to be brought up to date. Or conversely, perhaps it's the first time you've really sort of had time to think about the story, so you want to be quickly brought up to date 
and then kind of given a, a sort of perspective on that. So, and that's if you just think about the distribution channels, you know, add in, layer into that social media, um, community commenting, uh, a much more what, what The Guardian would have described as a sort of open form of journalism. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, 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 it requires a very different type of thinking. And this is, you know, for, for a newsroom, you know, people would have, would have shown up at 9 a.m., you'd have had your morning conference or your morning meetings around sort of 10, 10.30. Yeah, 10.30, the, the, you know, you've already missed a third of your audience and the news has already passed you by. Back to your question about where, where's the blood on the seats, I'd say understanding these, these cycles, understanding these, um, these new audiences and understanding how to get your content out using whatever channel is, is appropriate for the story and for the audience. I still have a, a strong fondness for print, and I still think there's a role in there, but I think it's becoming, a daily print operation is, is becoming really tricky, and it's almost a case amongst the, um, amongst the big news publishers, I think, of who's going to blink first, who's going to suddenly say, actually, this isn't for us, we're going to do something radical here. Which is a hazard in itself. You talked about, earlier you talked about um, publications being seduced by technologies that might be misguided. What, what are maybe some examples of that where a publication threw itself at a particular technology only to find out that, nope, this is, this is, not, gonna, this is not gonna take us down the right path? So I, I would say things like big data would be one. I'm not saying, so I think data is vital, but if you, if you talk to, you know, big, um, one of the big tech companies or the big professional services firms, Publishing, the publishing business is not like uh, home or auto insurance or um, retail banking where maybe you are looking to sort of mine millions of customer records. You know, the, the publishing business is, is very, very different to that. So just applying some of those models into publishing doesn't necessarily work so well. Some of them are, are kind of fun and, you know, they're, they're not so you know, the, the the cost of being seduced by them isn't isn't so great. But we had a bit of fun at The Guardian when um, uh, Google Glass was launched and we did a, um, a series of video dating sequences where uh, people would go on a first date and they would they would sort of wear the Google Glass and, and they would kind of record the event from their perspective and obviously being a date that was from somebody else's perspective as well. So you can kind of sometimes use it, but the idea that people were going to be wearing Google Glass, walking down the street, reading Guardian copy at the same time was, was never going to happen. So I think some of these technologies, they, they promise something and people don't quite know how to implement them. Other times, you're not quite sure what they're going to promise, but you know that there's, there's something worth investigating there. And I think the example, which is particularly relevant for publishers, which is really exciting me at the moment, is around um, the use of uh, in-car technology. So looking at this captive audience that now has um, an internet-enabled, internet-connected device in there that can stream content to them, which is totally tailored around time of day, length of trip, um, who's in the car, uh, all of these kind of things suddenly make for a very interesting proposition, which I don't think anyone's... I haven't seen an example yet that has completely blown me away with, with what it could do. I'd say the other uh, one, one final one on this is around the use of augmented and virtual reality. I had a feeling you were going to bring that up. If New York Times famously sent an issue of, of, the, of the newspaper with uh, Google Cardboard. 
Mm-hmm. allowing people to see around the world in 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 360 and I, I, and those are the sort of things i love because they they sort of they're taking a stance there and they're saying to their their readership we think this is coming we'd like you to try it and we want to sort of again to use a bit of a bit of a cliche but we want to sort of go on the journey with you i think the the use of augmented reality in particular i, I think could is going to become really powerful so allowing people to do to, to really get inside the story and that can be everything from sadly a, a disaster zone somewhere where you can you can really get inside the story something such as um, the Glastonbury pop festival or something like that where you know okay sure there's a quarter of a million people there but there's a lot of people who can't be there and will never be there but want to kind of get a feel for it and I think this is this different distinction between augmented reality and virtual reality is going to become a lot more apparent and people are going to if i had to place my bets i i think that augmented reality is going to be where people are going to start to see some very the idea of very localized citizen journalism to a to a new level augmented reality for those who don't know the difference between ar and vr can you explain it a little bit yeah, yeah, sure. So if you think about um, VR like the old um, Second Life experience, if you can think back that far in internet terms where you're, you're creating a, a truly sort of virtual environment, the headset is taking you to somewhere that is, could, could be entirely computer generated. It doesn't have to exist at all in real life. Augmented reality is more like imagine you're looking through your uh, you've got your mobile phone in front of you, your smartphone in front of you, and you're, you've got you've got the video on, so you can see a sort of a, a live stream of whatever it is that's in front of you. But based on who you are, where you are, what other data feeds are around, you can present certain information that that might be relevant to that particular time and space. It could be something fun and kooky, uh, something that is just just for entertainment value that creates a really exciting, engaged community around it, something such as Pokemon Go, where, you know, out of, out of nowhere, street corners and parks and shopping malls uh, are being reinvented for the purpose of this game. Um, you know, you, you put, your, put your smartphone up and suddenly there's a character there you, uh, and, and you're engaged. Um, 2016 was one of the more one of the more memorable summers of my life, actually, because of Pokemon Go. Okay, great. Well, there you. I, I think that people will remember the summer of '69, and they'll remember the summer of '16, which was much more tamer. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm not sure how many people can actually remember that summer of '69. <laughs> <laughs> they might tell you they were there, but if you press them on the details, they get a bit hazy. So the 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 future of virtual reality, there's a lot of potential there. It's still an unknown. But one of the things that I think caught a lot of people off guard was the resurgence of video as a publishing tool. I remember five years ago when we were all ready to give up on video because it was it sucked up all these resources, it sucked up all this money, and it the payoff wasn't enough. Not for as much that you invested in it. Suddenly, half of my Facebook feed or more is video. And it seems like the ingredient was to make them shorter, simpler, more text-based, which obviously really works in the favor of publishers. Did that surprise you to see videos make this comeback over the last couple of years? I don't think it surprised me. What what has surprised me, though, is how long it's taken for uh, some of the more established 
um, media brands to really get behind it. Mm. I think the, the, the biggest challenge for the, the publishing industry is to accept that sometimes on video, you, the um, user expectation for quality is much lower than they expect. So, you know, your publishers, they're thinking, well, we need to do something that's worthy of a, you know, sort of Hollywood and Oscar. It's got to be like super high production quality, super high production values. And actually, the, the audience is, is quite comfortable with something that's a lot more kind of rough and ready, a bit kind of, it's, it's a little bit more homespun. Um, you look at things like um, the Lab Bible uh, or, or some of these, you know, they're, they're real, you know, the, the production values are not so high. Uh, so that's been the thing that, that surprised me about video. And, and as you said before, really finding that formula of kind of shorter, harder hitting, more immediate, uh, that, that's taken a while as well. You know, the, these kind of nice, luxurious 90 second lead-ins. If, if you've not sort of got into the, into the main course within sort of, you know, five to 10 seconds, your, your audience not gonna, isn't gonna be there. Now that isn't true on every platform. I'd say, you know, if you're, if you're using the big social platforms, you may need to think like that. But I think there's a, a demand, as you get in, as you understand your audience in more detail, you can find these really super engaged niches within the audience. And for those people, you you know the the sky's the limit really for what you can you can offer them in video. They're they're insatiable. They'll they'll just kind of keep taking it, which can which can be really valuable because obviously that that level of engagement you know there the is 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 something that's uh, that, that everybody's looking to get. You want you want that, and that's kind of an implication of some loyalty to your brand. Andrew, there's so much that we're excited to learn about at the conference from you. Um, we're really excited to have you. I know that this is your first trip to Canada, so do you have any plans for what you're going to do while you're there? I do. I'm really excited to be coming to Canada. It's been somewhere that's been on my bucket list for a long time. And um, after the conference, I'm hoping to travel up to the National Park and see Lake Louise, which uh, if the photographs I've seen on the internet or anything to go by look absolutely stunning. So I'll be spending a little bit of time up there and hopefully getting some time in the snow as well. Oh, great. And I hope you get a chance to see a moose. And and if not, maybe we'll arrange to have one waiting for you in your hotel room. So uh, bring a bouquet of grass just in case. Maybe that's where the um, the augmented reality comes in. You can just sort of do that digitally. <laughs> Perfect. We'll make anything happen with that. Andrew, thanks for your time. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Omar. Thanks very much indeed for yours. I appreciate your help. And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. If you want to learn more from Andrew, come to Calgary on March 16 and 17 for the 2017 Alberta Magazine Conference. He'll be presenting Innovation Media Group's Innovation in Magazine Media 2017-2018 World Report. And he'll be there along with Haley Overland, the senior editor of Social Media at Chatelaine, who you can hear in the last episode, as well as editor John Bennett of The New Yorker and Leo Jung, creative director of the Ellie-winning publication California Sunday Magazine. Conference passes are on sale right now. Take advantage of the early bird pricing by going to Alberta Magazine my name is Omar Moalam. I hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check the AMP website or subscribe to iTunes for more interviews with our industry's finest. Ciao for now.